0: This is ConspiraNormal. So guys, welcome to ConspiraNormal. It's your host Adam and Sergio is with us. And uh, we are going across the proverbial pond, as we like to say often, on this episode because This is someone that we had on back in 2013 to talk about a book that he had written and at that time a film that was about to come out called Grey Wolf, which was about this possible survival of Adolf Hitler in Argentina in the late 1940s and into the 50s and 60s. And we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight. And some other research that he has done. But we've got to welcome uh, Gerard Williams back to the show.
1: Adam, Sophia, it's really nice to be with you. Really good. Yeah, you. yeah. yeah. it's nice, yeah. It's nice to while, have you. Yeah, lots of things have happened um, since 2013. The film actually came out. It's now available on Amazon for people to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did three series of Hunting Hitler um, for the History Channel, um, yeah. which had its good points. And, um yeah, I would have liked a little more editorial input into it, but yeah, a bit was a show. Um, television does tend to gloss over things a bit more than I'm used to, even though I've spent my life as a TV journalist. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the the case presented, which is what we did in Grey Wolf, that Adolf Hitler did survive and lived in Argentina until February 1962, um, was, I thought, going to be almost the end of the story. But... With everything else that I've been learning and with everything else I've been, I've been doing in the last, gosh, is it that long? Um, it's almost not important that Hitler survived, although, I mean, that, that is a key thing. Right. What's seriously important is how the Nazis did after World War II and how their continued existence um, and their continued organization had a major impact on right. our world. Absolutely, forty-five. I mean, just, and I've been quite stunned by some of the information I've been working with. Some that's been put out there before by people, um, which some it tends to be a, a little bit out there for me. I mean, I'm, I'm a I'm old-fashioned journalist. You know, I've been doing this for forty-something years, and um, I like to check my facts. I like to do the who, why, where, what, and when bit, um, and I don't have opinions. It's not something that journalists of my generation ever had, so it's been fascinating. It's been fascinating.
0: Yeah, um, it is a fascinating theory, a fascinating concept. When I when I I heard you on another show, and I was like absolutely fascinated by it. And then I, you had actually, I got in touch with you. You had actually sent me, uh, back then was what was a screener copy of the film. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's, it's a theory that in my mind is not incredibly- Adam, I'm going to have
1: to stop you there, my friend. Okay. It's not theory. I don't do theories. Okay. Okay. Are the people who, um, like to believe in things, um, I only believe in things that I know to be true right. Experience, um, and so what? You, when I first looked at it, mate, right, I thought, "Ah, oh, got to do this conspiracy theory story." And mm-hmm, it was about mm-hmm. four months into the research that I realized this wasn't conspiracy theory; it was a blasted conspiracy. So.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that, just kind of like give people a recap because that was like episode 50 something and we're on episode 322, I think now. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so so it's been a while. So let's kind of give people like that, that haven't really seen the film. And I do recommend going to see the film. If you have an Amazon Prime subscription, you should be able to see it quite easily. Yeah. But let's talk about some of this proof that Hitler did indeed survive World War II, that he was indeed in Argentina. You know, how did this come up? How did this start for you? I
1: was was in Argentina doing other stories, um, and I fell in love with the country and thought, oh, a great place. And it is a great place. Lovely people, great food, seriously good wine, um, and very, very friendly, generally. And I came across this story that Adolf Hitler had escaped to Argentina on a submarine and had not died in the bunker. Mm-hmm. And I thought, ah, oh, brilliant. I've never done a silly story, ever, in all my, all my time as a journalist, you know. Iraq twice, Rwanda, two and a half years, in and out of Bosnia, um, the fall of the Soviet Union. They're the stories I used to do. Um, wow. The tsunami, I was in Sri Lanka the day after the tsunami hit Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd worked for, you know, BBC News as a foreign duty editor, Reuters as a duty editor, um, Sky News as a, as a foreign editor. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm serious. What gets called nowadays mainstream journalist, and I thought, um, no, I'm, after all this time doing hard stories, I'm going to do a silly story about a man with a moustache getting on a submarine and ending up in Argentina. And then I started look at it, and uh, brought in my colleague, military historian Simon Dunstan. After about seven months of my research, I showed it to Simon. He said, "You're joking," and I said, "No, I'm not. Look at it." Now, there is no forensic evidence that Adolf Hitler died in the bunker, none whatsoever. In fact, the skull fragment the Russians insist is his was tested by an American um, DNA specialist and was found to be a woman in her 40s. So it couldn't be be Ava Brown either. Um, The Russians refused to release the teeth so that we can have them checked independently. Um, So there, there were just no forensics. And yet we have the sworn testimony of a pilot who says he flew them out of Berlin, Eva and um, Adolf Hitler. Um, We have multiple, multiple witnesses in Argentina who I've either spoken to or have seen their depositions in some cases. And some of whom have actually been threatened with death for talking to me, um, saying that they saw Adolf Hitler in Argentina at specific places at specific times up until 1962.
2: I mean, can you can you imagine how important it was to capture Hitler? It would have been so anticlimactic had he been just on the run or in like well, almost like a Osama bin Laden, you know, who's yeah, at large. A, I
1: don't know where this story comes from, you know, that, that Hitler died in the bunker. It comes from Hugh Trevor Roper, who wrote a book called The Last Days of Hitler. But um, the Russian commander um, in Moscow said that he thought Hitler had escaped probably to Spain or Argentina. Stalin said he thought he'd escaped. Eisenhower said we have no proof that Adolf Hitler died. Um, We hope he did, and he was still saying that in the 1950s. Um, Most of the major historical figures at the time um, weren't convinced that Hitler had died in the bunker. I mean, the Soviets were given something like seven or eight bad doubles of Hitler um, when they took the bunker complex. Um, One Soviet officer, a major nicotine Actually, took a Time reporter, I think it's Time, either Time or Newsweek reporter, to a secret place in Hitler's private study in the Reich Chancellery, where there was a tunnel down into the Berlin underground. And it was Major Nicotine's, um, when he went in there, they had found a letter on the floor, which had been written by Eva Brown to her parents, partially burnt, which said, You won't be hearing from me for some time. Um, and Major Nicotine was convinced, and he was NKVD, you know, which is now, um, was KGB and is now FSB, right. um, So Russian, sec- Russian Secret Service. Major Nicotine was convinced and told The Time and Newsweek reporter at the time that he was convinced Hitler had escaped down these tunnels to the underground. The BBC reporter um, on site of what we'd call embedded now with Soviet troops said mm-hmm. there was no evidence that Adolf Hitler had died in the bunker. And yet you Trevor Roper, wrote this piece of fiction that people have believed.
0: I was absolutely amazed by that when you sent me that clip that was from 1945 with the with the same BBC reporter that you were just talking about. Yeah. yeah. And and him making the statement that the Soviets had even told him that that was a body double.
1: Yeah. I mean and that,
0: so, and that went broadcast all through the whole world, I'm sure.
1: And yet somehow it's all been forgotten. I mean, as a journalist, I like to go back to my primary sources, unlike a lot of historians who don't. They just read books written by other historians. So I went back and looked at the newspaper articles. I went back and looked at the um, agency reports from AP, from Reuters, from UPI. And these are all things that I understand because I'm an ex-Reuters journalist. And it's very difficult to get a piece of news onto the wire service. Um, It goes through numerous checks. So it's not like yellow journalism, I think you call it in the States or, you know, the national, mm-hmm. um, this is serious reporters reporting serious things. And it's not their opinion that they're reporting. They're actually, you know, quoting Marshall Zhukov. They're quoting Major Nicotine. Um, they're quoting Peter Baumgarten, who, you know, flew, the, flew Hitler and his party out of Berlin on that fateful night. Um, so it became for me, sorry if I'm rambling on a bit, Adam, So if yeah, I like I you. Um, it became for me, there was no smoking gun, but there was bit bit, and bit and bit of evidence, so much evidence, that it turned out for me to be an avalanche of facts that just swept away the accepted truth. Um, and all that went into Grey Wolf, which I think is, is still out there, um, the book, um, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. And so much more we've been discovering ever since. I mean, in Grey Wolf, we, we postulate, we, we say that there was a deal done between Martin Bormann and Alan Dulles of the CIA um, with his great friend, um, J.J. McCloy, uh, both who sit on the Warren Commission, funnily enough, later on. Um, and the deal is that the Americans get all the German technology, effectively. They get all of uh, Van Von Braun's rocket stuff. They get a lot of nuclear um, material and a lot of nuclear scientists at the same time, Uh, a huge number of other scientists. And in return, and also in return for the Nazis giving up quite a lot of the loot that they nicked from Europe, because, you know, we are talking about the world's largest criminal gang. In return for some of that, they let Martin Bormann go, they let Adolf Hitler go, and they let the head of the Gestapo, um, Heinrich Muller, go. Now, Muller's meant to be dead in Berlin, But when they dug his grave up, it contained bits of three bodies, and none of them were of the same size as Heinrich Muller. So Muller's death is complete nonsense. Martin Bormann is meant to be dead in Berlin, proved by a DNA test in the 1980s um, that it was definitely Martin Bormann's body they eventually found in the same place they had dug in four times before. But the German authorities or the West German authorities at the time refused to name the person they had matched the DNA with. They simply said, we matched it with an 83-year-old female relative, Martin Bormann, and this is definitely Martin Bormann. Now, Bormann had six, maybe seven um, children, all, all of whom had offered to give their DNA. And the Western government refused, um, incinerated and burnt the remains that they had, and threw them in the North Sea. So you could never double-check it. Um, it's, it's an obvious cover-up, an obvious lie. Now, I have and even more since I wrote Grey Wolf with Simon, evidence that Martin Borman ran a major organization after mm-hmm. World War II. And that organization worked very closely with Alan Dulles, early OSS and CIA, and later worked extensively with the CIA across Latin America, um, in Egypt, um, under NASA, and also was a great help, amazingly, Nazis, were a great help to the state of Israel in its early years. Um, and all that's, this,
0: that's an interesting irony, isn't it?
1: Oh, don't. Um, I've been receiving information recently about a particular character who I can't name at the moment, but, I mean, over a thousand documents um, from this man's personal collection. And it, the, the material is just mind-blowing. There are documents there which show that Alf Hitler did not die in the bunker, there are documents there that prove Martin Borman is in Argentina at a particular estancia, which I thought he was at anyway, from previous um, from previous eyewitnesses. And there is material there that uh, leads all the way to Dealey Plaza and you know that fateful afternoon in, in Dallas. Um, I mean, that isn't key to my my research, but there are there are distinct links to um, JFK's murder. And distinct links all the way through to the CIA under Alan Dulles and, um, and J.J McCloy's involved heavily there as well. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, it' just blown me away. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we have, we have a situation where after World War II, the Nazis were supposedly defeated. So the United States hired the whole of the, West, the whole of the Nazi intelligence organization in the East known as the Galen Organization.
0: Yeah, Reinhard Reinhard, Galen.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. So over a 1,000 SS and Wehrmacht officers, all sworn Nazis, all all oath-born Nazis, to act as their intelligence operation against the Soviets. And the Galen Organization actually worked for Martin Bormann and his organization, and they funneled America with information that made America very, very scared of Russia, um, or the Soviet Union as it was. But most of this was lies. And what they did was keep the West's eyes firmly focused on Moscow, while West Germany was able to rebuild itself, become the economic powerhouse that it still is. And they did this by bringing all the capital that they had pushed out of Europe from 1943 onwards, and a little bit earlier in some cases, and bringing that back into West Germany to fund what became known as the West German economic miracle. I and mean, it's just staggering.
0: Let's talk about this because I think this is important to understand um, about Martin Bormann, and this is depicted in the film, and I believe, uh, uh, although I believe it, we will probably depict this in the book. You probably depict this in the book as well. That there's a certain point where Hitler is just there in Argentina, and he becomes essentially signed sidelined. Definitely, Bormann. and this this whole Nazi apparatus almost becomes this 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 kind of economic banking um that have it influence in all kinds of terrorist organizations and all kinds of far right fascist groups and the, the it kind of morphs over time into something completely almost completely different.
1: Totally I, I think Borman realizes and, and especially by about nineteen forty eight which is when he eventually gets to Argentina, I'm pretty sure, Um, he realizes that there's no way that the swastika, the jackboots, the Hugo Boss-designed SS uniforms, and that whole um, Nazi image can ever work again. The camps have become a reality. People are realizing that not just 6 million Jews, but 11 million people were industrially murdered by these animals um, during the war and and before the war. And so Bormann realized that there was no way they were ever going to come to power again in the way that they had been conspicuously in power in Nazi Germany. Forget right. rallies like Nuremberg. Right. And he had country buying amounts of money. I mean, literally country buying amounts of money. Um, they could do anything they wanted to. And the idea that Germany was denazified after World War II is complete and total nonsense. Most of the Nazis, whether they had been in the judiciary, in politics, or in the military, simply took off their Hugo Boss-designed uniforms, put on their Hugo Boss suits, and went back to work. And they were <laughs> and they still working
2: yeah.
1: for the leader of the party. And the Reichsleiter, the leader of the National Socialist Democratic Party, NSDAP, um, so the National Socialist Workers' Party, the Nazi Party, the leader of that party was Martin Bormann, and Martin Bormann had communication and um, at all levels within German society post-war. All levels,
2: and they could still hang on to one of their self-appointed causes. The fascists were saying they were they were there to save Western civilization from the communists, as serving as this underbelly in the Cold War. They could still essentially carry out uh, that. That function they believed that they were there to do.
1: Very much so. I mean, and, you know, we had um, situations like the political side of the Catholic Church in the Vatican and the Cardinal alwa hudal the Curia, um, believed that these people were warriors for Christ.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. You know, th- th- these people were fighting the godless communists. And, of course, fighting, or, fighting and, and destroying also the Jews who some members of the Christian faith would blame for the, for the death of Jesus Christ. Um, so they were good guys. They're not good guys as far as I'm concerned or anybody with any moral compass. But they, are, they were seen as good guys to be protected and helped. And, of course, they had so much money and so much infrastructure that was built very quickly. Um, a great deal of that was done with help from Spain under, under General Generalissimo Franco. But also in Argentina under the Perons, Ava Peron and Juan Domingo Peron, you know, that magic ch- magic couple, had been Nazi spies in the of there since 1940. I have the documents. Then it seems
2: like Spain and Argentina in particular really serve as these springboards for all kinds of operations around the, the rest of the world during the Cold War.
1: Yeah, I mean, you, you know, the Nazis have a perfectly protected base in Spain. Spain never extradites a single Nazi war criminal. And Argentina only in the 70s, and they're, they're small fry. Um, but when you have a, a German government in power in the 1960s, where the number three is actually Eichmann's boss from the Jewish resettlement organization, you know, it, it was at that level. A man more important to the final solution was a well-known German politician And somebody that the West dealt with on a very friendly basis. So he'd be Neukölln's boss. But, I mean, I can understand why people would feel that in Germany in in the 50s and the 60s and even into the 70s that the culture of Nazism had not gone away. That that old guard was still in power. Well, it was. So, you know... um, I
0: mean, it's only
2: only 20 years. I mean, think about if if it was the year 2000 and there were the same characters who had all these positions and, you know, it's it's not a lot of time.
1: No, and also you have to understand to a certain extent the real politic involved in the American approach to this. And I'm not going to be insulting towards America, but I will be very insulting to aspects of American foreign policy, Um, is that they didn't want to keep a million men in Europe. They wanted them to go home. So they couldn't mm-hmm. put in people to run every every local municipality, every local school board, yeah, yeah. you know. So they just went, who's the most qualified to do this? Um, and, you know, people tried not to put their right arm up too quickly, took the, too much of an angle. Um, but they were the right people to do it, supposedly. Um, and I think that one of the key things, and I think this comes down right from the top at Martin Bormann, and his organization, is that anti-Semitism became a thing of the past. I think they saw that their, their cruel race war against Judaism had been the major factor in their, in their disastrous um, attempt to win World War II. You know, the amount of time, effort, resources, and everything else they put into massacring U- European Jewry would have done them extremely well on the Russian front. So that
0: just kind of fell by the wayside eventually.
1: Yeah, um, I think that it was one of those things, along with the flag, um, the jack boots, and the and the really smart SS uniforms that yeah. they realized simply was not going to play in a post post World War II world.
2: Yeah, they also probably thought that it was they had accomplished most of
1: that already. Completely. I mean, Europe was pretty free of of, of Jews. I mean, Germany still is very. Um, doesn't have very many Jews nowadays. So, yeah, maybe, maybe they did. But I think there was a, a distinct wing of the Nazi party. So people like Heydrich, um, definitely Hitler, who was an anti-Semite to the core, um, and Himmler. It was that, that wing that was definitely all about racial purity and everything else. People like Martin Bormann, um, Herman Feiglund, General Herman Feiglund, who also escaped after the end of the war. Um, he wasn't executed um, by the Nazis themselves. Um, they were, after the war, they became a lot more real about things and thought, okay, we've got all this money, we've got all this power, potentially, we've got all this organization, we don't need to be like we were. We can still pursue certain goals, which is, you know, things like having strong populist leaders in power, um, which is a great cover for basically criminal activity everywhere. Um, and that's what they did.
0: Yeah, they became a multinational business empire which, which also used paramilitary forces.
1: Completely. I mean, yeah. in fact, I now have evidence that most of the executive actions, so assassinations carried out on um, CIA orders were carried out via this organization, the Borman organization, let's call it, to um, spinny the spider's web, um, scarily. Um, you know, it, it's things like... Um, They came up with a plot to assassinate Fidel Castro in Cuba. And JFK said, you're not doing this. But the planning was all done by Nazis.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you this. I mean, this sounds a little strange, but, I mean, Jay's Bond reference here. I mean, you know, what we're essentially talking about is Spectre. So was um, was um, Fleming kind of trying to let us know some things?
1: Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, Fleming is an interesting character anyway. During the end of the war, he's running an operation called 30 Assault Unit, 30 Assault Unit Commando British. And um, 30 Assault Units are designed to go in to areas that are not necessarily going to be under American, British or French control. So into areas that the Soviets will control when their troops eventually get there. Um, Demarcation lines that 30 AU go over. Now, I have proof that 30 AU went and picked up every single member of von Braun's team, the rocket team, and brought them and handed them over to Third Army under Patton, that they didn't just turn up on bicycles and surrender to Patton. The Allies knew, or a certain number of the Allies knew, exactly where each of these scientists lived, and they went and got them and brought them out. Um, That's not the story history tells us, but it is the story that's true, um, written now by Former members of 30 Assault Unit. They were called Flemings Red Indians. But yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, Spectre is basically the Bormann organization and Blofeld is Bormann. Yeah.
0: There was another, um, Otto Skorzeny comes to mind too with the Paladin group, which was directly associated with uh, Franco and with Spain. Skorzeny and,
1: is much more fascinating and much more key to the whole yeah. post war operation than. Um, He's ever been seen to be before, and um, I intend to prove that um, extensively over the next year. to um, everywhere, and he is he is the key linchpin between the Bormann organisation and the wet work that the CIA want to carry out with people like Klaus Barbie, Altman in Bolivia, um, the whole Colonia Dignidad horror in Chile, which was basically a an arms factory run by a cult, um, which also Mm -hmm. produced weapons like sarin. Um, I couldn't get in there. My co-host, Tim Kennedy, went in uh, because they recognized me. So uh, when we were shooting Hunting Hitler, I ended up spending 10 days in a rather tatty hotel um, because (laughs) the Colonial Dignidad people realized who I was. Um, But Skorzeny's involved in that. He's involved in um, uh, the Death squads and Operation Condor which is, you know, Henry Kissinger's great legacy in Latin America, um, where in Argentina, just take Argentina for an example, 30,000 of their own citizens were massacred and disappeared by a right-wing government and troops that had been trained by Nazis and by the Americans at the School of the Americas
0: in Fort Bragg. That was a dirty war.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But this dirty war also ran in Bolivia, which was also the source of Huge amounts of money in CIA cocaine travel. Um, it's just there's so much of this that is not the history that we were taught yeah. and fed.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you call this the spider's web, and it's very but appropriate.
1: Because the, the Nazi operation was known as Spinny. Yeah. Um, not Odessa. Odessa is a CIA um, uh, creation. But the Schmini is the real thing, or the Kameradenwerk, the Friends, uh, the friends work. Um, I mean, I've recently seen a list, <laughs> an address book, um, which shows every single member, senior member, of the Kameradenwerk after World War II. They're everywhere.
2: Well, this was oh, essentially the, the underbelly of the entire Cold War.
1: The Nazis run, ran the Cold War. It's my, the opinion I'm now coming to. Um, but they ran the Cold War, and this is going to make me start sounding like some sort of left-wing liberal nutter, um, which I'm not. I am in part, but I'm not really. They ran the Cold War with the complete help and acknowledgement of what one of your presidents called the military-industrial complex in America. Yep. Um, it was Eisenhower, wasn't it? Who it was Eisenhower. It was his, fa- his
0: farewell. His farewell
1: speech on television, Grant, um, which should be. You know, it's something that every single American has to watch, really, um, so that they don't all volunteer to go off and fight in senseless wars for the military-industrial complex. Um, J.F. Kennedy, you know, John F., um, said that he would smash the CIA into a thousand pieces because Kennedy knew how dirty they were. Sadly, mm-hmm. they had so much dirt on Kennedy that it made him difficult for it to come out. Um, And Bobby, they had dirt on as well. Otherwise, Bobby would have done it before he'd been killed. But, I mean, that's the main reason that Kennedy's assassinated, is to protect the interests of the um, military-industrial complex in America.
2: Well, in making this, like, ultimate Faustian bargain with these people in order to win the Cold War, now that we have won the Cold War – What is what is that price that we have had to pay? Do you think?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm 61, so I I grew up through part of the Cold War. You know, I was a working journalist when the wall fell. In fact, I was in the in the Baltic states when the Russians pulled out of there. Um, And it always struck me whenever I saw Russian troops how rubbish they were and how badly Mm -hmm. equipped they were in comparison to British or American or French or Spanish troops, actually. And I wonder really whether the cold war was as much of a threat as, as we were all taught to believe, you know, the the whole duck and cover thing of the 1950s. Um, I wonder that, I wonder that too. Yeah. And whether it was just done to take our minds off something else. I mean, false flag, whatever you want to call it. Um, although false flag has become used in so many different situations now, but maybe that was the ultimate false flag. um, I remember uh, I was in Berlin, for Monetary Union, when the two states, East Germany and West Germany, adopted the, the Deutsche Mark, the mark. And you only had to go in past Checkpoint Charlie two blocks, and the walls were still covered in bullet holes. There were still shell holes in the streets. I mean, yeah, this wasn't a, appear to be a superpower that you needed to be really worried about. They couldn't even fill in the damn street holes. Maybe they didn't want to. But these, you know, these it, are
0: the these are the bullet holes from World War Two.
1: Yeah, just okay. over the border in East yeah, Germany. Right. Um, yeah, the, the buildings were still shattered. I don't know, Adam. You know, I really don't know. I don't believe in the Illuminati. I don't believe in lizard men. I don't believe that there's a, a secret cabal, or I didn't believe there was a secret cabal running the world. Um, what I do believe is that. People get together and Bilderberg, which is a group that is not um, a fantasy. It's an important group um, that does bring together world leaders and um, decision makers and um, influencers, as they're now called on social media um, every year, to talk about what's happening in the world. And I believe that these interested parties, so you may have um, the reasons for going into Iraq, right, which was shown to be Complete rubbish. There were no weapons of mass destruction. No matter what Mr. Blair and Mr. Bush said, there were not. Um, and they knew there weren't as well. But there was oil, and that was really important at the time, although they messed that up quite a lot. Um, and I think that these these cabals, these in, important industrial, economic, and political organizations, get together like a Venn diagram, you know, where circles intervene, and they realize that there are areas where they should be working together to maintain their level of power, um, importance, and authority on the world, and that's what happens. So it's not um, not so much of a rigid structure. I mean, I you know never believed in the sort of secret America deep state stuff, um, but aspects of it are terribly true.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, my my opinion on the, the start of the Cold War, why the Cold War was maintained for as long as it was was I think it was just quite simply to keep the United States and maybe western Europe but more the United States on some kind of permanent war footing that would it would it would always be a war economy because that would cause the economy to boom because they didn't essentially want to contract like what happened in the 20s and 30s no. that's kind of been my that's kind of been my thought on it that that the Russians were and the Soviets were kind of a this enemy that was kind of set up
1: so yeah, I mean, we, could, we yeah, could be on that constant footing. Just one little example of that. When John J. McCloy, who was like, plenipotentiary, the ruler of parts of Germany after the war um, freed all the German industrialists. One of the first things the Krupp uh, munitions company did was supply the steel for American tax to fighting Korea. So right. you know, the links were there. Um, and funny enough, Scorsini was Krupp's representative in Argentina and various other places. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk
0: about some of those companies, because that's important, because you list, um, you know, VW, Volkswagen, Siemens, BMW. Yeah. and now And now Krupp, too, which, you know, that's that goes way back in German industrial history. Yeah, the yeah. The arms of Krupp. But, I mean, you they know, made
1: that money out of the Franco-German War in 1870, where they supplied um, the Prussians with the right guns.
0: Right, right, and and you know how these companies were just in bed with the Nazis completely, and how they have just maintained, they've been able, they they were never busted up, they were just and then the
1: links, well, the, the only one that was busted up was I. G. Farben and became the baby I. G. Farbens. So you now have, oh, I can't think, Sandor's, Bayer, Sinatra, right, Bayer, all of those people who are part of that I. G. Farben um, conglomerate that happened. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the links are amazing. I mean there were something like and it, it's never been I, I have the documents somewhere in the myriad of documents that I still have um, But there was something like 400 American businessmen captured at the end of World War II in Germany. Mm-hmm. These were representatives of IBM who supplied the counting machines for the camps. the yep. Ford Motor Company, which supplied over a third of the vehicles used by the Nazis. In World War Two, thank you very much, Henry Ford. Heinrich Ford. Yes, quite. I mean, it, <laughs> the, won the highest award that any civilian could under the Nazis, um, and was you know, it's part of his writings, his early racist writings um, that inspired Hitler. And you know, part of Mein camp is straight out of Henry Ford's playbook. That's um, right. You, you got yeah.
0: a, if, you, if you bought a bottle tea, you got a free copy of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion.
1: Hmm. Extremely, extremely worrying. And, you know, and yet the Ford Motor Company is one of the most important, valued and um, respected industrial conglomerates in the world. Yeah. Yep. I and mean, even Coca-Cola, for God's sake, had huge bottling plants in Germany. And it's how the orange drink Fanta was invented, um, because Coca-Cola That's- Germany couldn't get hold of the syrup that made Coke. So they invented this um, ETSAS is false orange syrup, and it became Fanta. So, you know, I find myself wondering where the truth finishes and where the conspiracy idiocy starts. Um, And I find myself going down rabbit hole after rabbit hole and, you know, getting to the end of that rabbit hole and finding out that it's some teenager typing in his bedroom with one hand uh, because he thinks it's exciting. Um, Or people who have created things for various reasons you know there's um uh, looking at it the other day do you know the police gazette adam
0: mm-hmm. uh, i think i've heard of it yeah right so it's a
1: 1950s and 60s um yellow magazine basically um okay. you know it's full of ridiculous stories about aliens and everything else but regularly <laughs> reg- well not that aliens are necessarily silly but um we don't know yet But regularly, they wrote Hitler is Alive stories, Uh regularly, and Martin Bormann's Alive, and Testaments from Martin Bormann. I mean, stuff that doesn't – you know, they're saying Hitler's suicide was faked. Um, There is stuff in this book, which I've got in front of me, called Hitler is Alive, guaranteed stories reported by the National Police Gazette, that I now have second and third witnesses to. Stuff that was just thrown away in a yellow tabloid magazine. Um, which I now know to be true. In fact, there's more truth in the police gazette than there is in the Washington Post at the time.
0: Do you think that that was possibly some kind of form of misinformation, that if we put it in a tabloid, people are not going to believe it?
1: Some I'm kind of psycho- weird psychological
0: to- I'm quite worked out
1: at the moment. There's a guy called Drew Pearson, um, who has some amazing reporting during World War II, and um, he's very anti-fascist, very anti-Nazi, hates the Bund in America, all the rest of it. And Pearson writes some brilliant stuff. Um, but it's it tends to turn out to be true later, even though it sounds um, really silly at the time. And in fact, if you've seen um, the the American TV series, The Plot Against America, Philip Roth? Yes. Oh, yes. yes.
0: Right? We actually did a Patreon episode about that.
1: Okay. Yeah because Drew Pearson is the democratic presidential hopeful standing against Lindbergh in the Roth book. But Drew Pearson's is okay. a journalist, and he publishes stuff that, you know, Eleanor Dulles, I'll give you one example. He publishes material which originates with the American ambassador in Berlin before World War II, which describes Eleanor Lansing Dulles as a confirmed Hitlerite. Now she goes on to run the German desk at State after after the war um, for her brother so you have the Dulles family the terribly important parts of the whole um, state department and the secret state and Eleanor Lansing Dulles resigns in 1962 around the same time that Adolf Hitler is falling desperately ill and her first trip overseas is to Argentina just in time for Hitler's death now that's either a coincidence or she's representing the family at the funeral and I still haven't made my mind up on that, because I don't have a second source for it
0: this is a, this is one thing too that we kind of have to look, I think some of the roots of this American, the CIA, and this Nazi connection. I mean, we're talking about stuff that's before the war, and mm-hmm. I think that that um the plot against America, now I've only seen the miniseries, but I think that Thank that you. brings that's out cool. I think it brings out pretty well. Just how there were a lot of fascist sympathies in the 1930s in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had the business plot in 1934, which uh, was this plot to topple FDR and replace yep. him with Smedley Butler, but Butler spilled the beans on it. And there were people like J.P. Morgan that were involved with this, and uh, the, I think the uh-huh. Duponts, Sirvio, yeah. were involved Chase with that Manhattan,
1: too, heavily yeah. involved with stuff as yeah. well. Um, yeah, yeah they're, they're Hitler's bankers.
0: Uh huh, and so you, you've got this real this real scheme of, of of American fascism represented by by people like the Dulles brothers and uh, the Luces, the Time Life magazine, and, and
1: organization which is huge and runs major Nuremberg style rallies in New York. I um, mean, there are whole areas of Manhattan of the island which was were named after major Nazi figures before what? World War II. This all changed after the war. Um, and, you know, there were summer camps for Hitler Youth and everything else in America at the time. Um, and it's really difficult for me to work all this out. And I wish I could, you know, I wish I could have some really straight shooting, straight talking answer to all this. But it's so deep and it's so um, involved. And it goes against everything that I've ever learned as a as a as a child or as an adult from history or the history sure. that's been fed to me, yeah. that I sometimes see myself sitting here and thinking, you're completely barking mad, Gerard. We,
0: we, don't, we don't get the real history. We, don't, we get this kind of censored, sanitized, or abridged version of it. We're not getting what, you know.
1: I met a, I met a, a retired oil executive about three years ago, and we got chatting, a retired American oil executive. He was about 80 at the time, I suppose, so I'd have been in my 50s. And, um, he was telling me that he'd been in Vietnam before you even sent, um, advisors into Vietnam and that they had found substantial quantities of petrocarbons, um, offshore in Vietnam. Um, and it was only after the war had been running for two years that they realized that they weren't as big as they thought it was. Yeah, I believe it. They were huge and there was no way that they would let this fall into the hands of Ho Chi Minh. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why you went to war in, in Vietnam. Um, forget the domino theory. You thought there was oil.
0: Well, the CIA were also smuggling heroin out of there, too. That was another part of it.
1: Yeah, that helps. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they were, so Bolivia and the Golden Triangle were, were you know, bread and butter for CIA operatives in the day. Um, and it just uh, I mean, I, I met, again, a, a British spook. Um, a sort of ex-British agent who was very coy about him being a British agent and um, he'd been in Bariloche at the time when um, Eisenhower goes to Bariloche um, to meet up with the Argentine president at the time why he goes to Bariloche I'm not sure because it's Nazi central everybody knows it's Nazi central um, but this guy was saying he was there as a British um, officer ADC um, watching it, this happen uh, because Britain had some major interests in Argentina at the time. And he said you couldn't get in and out of well, um, because there were machine gun posts on the one road in and one road out. And that wasn't just because Eisenhower was there. That was because it was full of Nazis. Uh, I mean... <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sounding like a confused fool to you, Sir Phil
0: and um, Adam here. No, but, no, you no, no you don't. <laughs> not to it's, us.
2: <laughs> it's, it's over. It's overwhelming. And like with what you were talking about, as far as there being, there's usually the underlying economic reason uh, we go to war, and then they rely on the foreign policy elites to craft the uh, foreign foreign policy reasons. Um, yeah, but
1: you know yeah. they then. Then, especially in the area that you know, I've been very much focused on for about the last 15 years now, um, much to the detriment of my real life, um, things get out there all the time, like the Arctic bases for the Nazis are complete and total nonsense, but it takes over people and takes over sites, and so much that is real gets missed because people want to think about sexy things like. Nazi UFOs, um, the bell, um, the uh, bases in the, Ant- in the Arctic, the Antarctic, rather. Um, now, the bell is complete nonsense as well, this idea of a time-travelling UFO thing designed by Hans Kamler. Um, there's a great book just written by Dean Reuter, um, which shows that Kamler was in American custody in 1945 um, until '48, and then probably goes to Argentina. Um, so he didn't design the bell or any major secret wonder weapon. Um, he was being interrogated by CIC in the States, uh, probably not very far from his friend Reinhard Galen and um, that bloody awful Nazi Wernher von Braun.
2: I know there's a risk of, um, you know, there's obviously information wars going on, um, but how much, what, what sources can we find from the Soviets that give supporting evidence for for this idea of there being this continued underground Nazi international?
1: Really difficult now. Um, I mean, I I met and and spoke with the um, Soviet, the Russian ambassador in Argentina, um, who was a former colonel in the NKVD, KGB, and uh, very dapper, very sort of upper-class Russian. We had a long, long chat, and um, he said, well, I, I think you're completely right. Um, he said, but you're not going to get any information out of out of Moscow. And when Yeltsin came to power, and then um, they sold off a huge amount of material. So mm-hmm. a number of Russian oligarchs now own everything they took from Berlin at the end of World War II, mm-hmm. including the book to the bunker, which my British spook tells me that he'd seen and tried to get me to buy it for 50,000 U.S., and I went, I'm, I don't have 50,000 US. <laughs> I don't have 5 US. I mean, you know, give me a break. I mean, this is not something I do to make money. Um, so what it, yeah, information have been for sale as well? Yeah, I mean it, it, so everything, everything they took, the files, everything else is now owned by private individuals in Russia with mega money. And we'll never get, we'll never come to the surface. I think it's why the FSB won't allow the limited amount of material that they have to be examined by independent um, independent researchers. And the FSB said I was nuts when I wrote Grey Wolf. Um, so I wrote to them and I said, prove me wrong. And funnily enough, I never heard back from them.
2: Well, you know, it, it's, it's very likely that uh, the uh, regime with the most ties to these extreme right-wing elements uh, that's around today is probably the modern uh, modern russia so that that they may have some kind of uh interest in keeping some of this history suppressed as well
1: i'm sure they do it just as you know every file in british archives that is of any interest at all to this period of history has recently been stabbed top secret for another 50 years really yeah <laughs> but interestingly i have recently come across a source of um Documents from the U.S. government at various times, which have never been declassified, um, which were in the possession of somebody who will remain nameless at the moment, which are fascinating reading and show the American government knew exactly what was going. Aspects of the American government. And this is my problem. I've always been, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Superman fan, right? I'm a Green Lantern fan. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've always believed in sort of um, justice in the American way and um, all that stuff which was stuff that was sold to me in in the UK as a kid. And, you know, men in white hats riding into the sunset to defeat those horrible, nasty Indians and men in black hats. And, you know, my my sister was um, an army officer in the 1970s, late 60s, 1970s in Germany with the British Army of the Rhine. And she had loads of American friends, quite a few of them who went off to fight in Vietnam at the time. Um, and I'd met some of these young officers when Anne brought them home um, to to Britain um, to see the family come back for a family meal, I suppose, um, although I think she fancied a couple of them. Um, but yeah, I mean I just I just don't know it, it, it just what the hell was going on that was so secret that we can't be told the truth even now seventy five years later.
2: Well, it's probably because of the implications. For now, probably because you can actually trace people in power today and companies with power today
1: oh, you know, right back. So. Yeah. Very much so. I mean, you know, you, you try and find out the um, the the holdings of some of those major American, uh, some of those major German companies like BMW. They're all hidden. You know, you yeah. can't you can't find out who their shareholders are. Um, yeah, we hit- can't
2: even get tax
0: returns of our <laughs>
2: presidents. <so
0: that's, laughs> That's the yeah. thing, though. That's the thing, though, too, is that so much of this stuff is really potentially damning, and a lot of it is so in the shadows and so secretive that I don't think that these people want it want this stuff to be ever known. No, they don't. How they how they really feel about, uh, you know, this this the, that these people are, are essentially the neo fascists. And that there's a continuity from
1: the 30s till now. But it's a strange kind of fascism. Yeah. It really is a weird kind of fascism. It's not the Mosley in Britain or the Mussolini in Spain or um, the Hitler in Germany or, you know, the the Franco in in Spain. They're in the background. They're in the shadows. They don't don't have some guy in a a smart uniform because that doesn't sell anymore. Right. Um, so they're in the shadows, but, I mean, they're the guys making money. They're the guys who are raping the planet now. Um, yeah. And so besides
2: making money, though, is there, is there any cohesive remains of some of these former groups? And do they have any kind of historical or ideological mission that you can suss out at all? Or do you think not, it's pretty I'm much not, at this point just I'm, about money? I'm
1: not sure there's any ideological mission there, apart from let's make money. Yeah. Let's be in power, and let's not let these people know. Um, and that sounds, that sounds stupid when I say it like that, but that's what I keep coming up against. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of an age and older than you guys, so more than a guess. And, um, so my father was a world war two combat soldier, um, British army joined up at 18, um, fought all the way through North Africa, up through Italy, was wounded three times, um, regimental Sergeant major at Tobruk, um, uh, which was a, a huge thing, um, Mentioned in dispatches, brave guy, my dad, um, and one of my heroes. But also came wow. back, came back to this country. Well, my hero came back to this country and helped to set up the National Health Service, set up the nationalisation of our coal industry. Worked in the coal industry all his life. Um, was a God-fearing, decent man who had gone to war at eighteen in 1939 because he hated fascists. An uncle mm-hmm. of his actually fought. Um, against the fascists in in Spain in the international decades, So I think he'd been quite an influence on my dad. Um, And my dad died before I wrote Grey Wolf, which was uh, one of those sadnesses. But I know damn well that if my father had read Grey Wolf, he'd want to pick up his Lee Enfield and go looking for people to shoot. Right. (laughs) That great generation was totally and completely betrayed. Yeah. When you have young men hitting the beach at Utah in northern France, and they are facing young men who have been driven to that beach in Ford Motor Company vehicles, what the hell sense is that? Mm -hmm. You know, the the American oil industry put the price of petrol up before D-Day. And the government had no choice but to pay it. Mm -hmm. So... The, when you can, when you come across these things and you then try to start to knit them together, I need to be a spider, Adam. So I feel I just need to be a spider, you know, to know how to knit this web together um, mm. because it goes everywhere. And one of the problems of, of writing the current book I'm writing, which was called The Spider's Web, which is now called The Secret Reich because it goes further, um, is what to leave out. Because yeah, there's, there's so much. There's so much. And, of course, a lot of the stuff that I'm going to have to leave out, because it's a book, um, is stuff that actually makes the point. Do you know what I mean? It's it's how you you reach that certain point. Um, There's so much behind it. Like, you can't just say um, the dirty war happened in Argentina because Henry Kissinger said in a phone call, yep, you guys go ahead. We're on recess in Congress. They won't know anything for three months.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Gerard, about because uh, we've talked about the U.S. What about some other countries? I mean, what about uh, what, what about the UK's kind of involvement uh, the UK, with this? The UK,
1: the UK is a complete mess um, after the war. I mean, basically, the UK was told by America, "Give up your empire. We're not going to have it. Um, we're yeah. not going to be a world power. You can be." Um, how many states have you got? Fifty-three. Fifty. Fifty. Okay, we're the fifty-first yeah. state and the biggest. <laughs> And the biggest aircraft carrier in Europe. Um, that's, that's, that's the deal with the so UK. Like, uh, uh,
0: didn't Orwell call it or Airstrip One?
1: Yeah, he did. Like? I think he, he realized that that was going to be real. Um, <laughs> that, that Airstrip One became a reality, and especially during the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, France is important. Um, there is French operation stuff all over the place. They're a big player mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Um, and the French benefited quite a lot from their organization's links with the Bourman organization, funnily enough. Um, so France and the United States. Um, but, you know, after World War II, you guys were the superpower. Right. right? Yes. Right.
0: You ran the world. We were the um, only major combatant that wasn't, uh,
1: wasn't damaged. Yeah, you know, nobody bombed his cities. Um, close thing. I mean, I think you were three months away from having a dirty nuke dropped in the middle of Manhattan, to be honest. Um, the Germans definitely have the technology to do it. And in fact, quite a lot of the, um, enriched uranium that was designed for the Nazis bombs, um, came to America on board a submarine and was met Mm -hmm. by the, met by the father of the, um, atomic program. What's his name? Guy who said, I have become Oppenheimer. well, so, yeah, you know, Oppenheimer's at the, at, the, at the key when U-234 surrenders um, yeah. in Pearl Sound. And the, the uranium that was in that bomb goes to at least one of the two bombs that were dropped on the Japanese. Because yeah, you did- I
0: think it was Hiroshima.
1: Yeah, because you did not have the fissionable material to do it. And right. that's part of the Borman deal. I tell you what, we'll give you the nukes. Let us go. Yeah. And we'll be useful I- in the future.
0: See, I think that this started I think probably around forty two, forty-three. I think that uh Borman and some of the other guys In
1: forty three, happening. These real um,
0: these real bureaucrats that said like, okay, things are not going well, and they started um they just started pulling out capital, taking stuff out of the country, putting I mean, it in Latin it, America. I
1: mean, it, the Dallas brothers were at the were at the Munich Olympics. Um in a box that was visited by Martin Bormann at the time. Um, they had contacts. And, you know, people think that nowadays you can make an internet, you know, transfer of money without any problems whatsoever. But that's been going on a very long time if you're a government. You can ask the Swiss to transfer $40 million, please, in 1943 to your bank account in Buenos Aires, backed up by hard gold that you were keeping in Switzerland, and they just do it telegraphically. And it, mm-hmm. boop, it's in Buenos Aires so i mean money and capital were able to be moved around the world not quite as easily as they are today but pretty easily um and they took they took massive advantage of that i mean in 43 Bormann realized they'd lost the war um that for every hundred thousand men they put in the field in the east the soviets would put a million men and after the battle of kursk the biggest tank battle of world war ii um, which was a draw Bormann realized that they could not win. Hitler believed that they could have nukes very, very soon. In fact, they may well have used a battlefield nuke at Kursk. That's according to the Japanese diplomatic observer on the field at the time. Yeah. They took the whole oh, guards division. Yeah, um, I think
0: Jim, Jim Mars wrote about that. Yeah, and it's too, not just you know. Jim. I mean, yeah.
1: I, like, I like Jim's work. But, you know, a lot of it's brilliant. Um, a lot of it is quite brilliant. And, and a lot of it goes places where I tend to fear to tread because i want people to believe what i'm writing is real right and you know i, I come on a show like yours because i like you adam you're a great guy so if you're the first time we've really met but and i know the sort of um audience you have and the, and the, the topics that you cover not all of which would be something that i would be interested in um oh, sure yeah that's yeah. Kind, of, kind of a fascinating you know because on my days off yeah i love aliens and cryptids and all that sort of stuff but um, but trying not to be in the same area as people who talk about the Antarctic bases, the Bell, um, you know, the, the genetic supermen, um, aliens with lizard faces running the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think you. I think you got to look. I think you got to
0: look at what's reasonable, and you got to look at what is what is what is possible. I think a lot of. I mean, and I'll say this: I think a lot of the stuff that people talk about in conspiracy theory circles, I think a lot of it is kind of disinformation and misinformation, and a lot of it is there to kind of obscure yes. some of the things that have really gone on historically. Very so it, it 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 takes people down a rabbit hole, I and then all the- of a sudden they get diverted.
1: I wish I knew who was producing it and why. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because that would just answer so many questions. I mean, the whole UFO alien thing, you know, which I'm not going to go into in any detail. There's disinformation and misinformation everywhere. Right. Absolutely. Right. Right. False pictures, false autopsies, you name it. There is so much junk out there that it's impossible to swim through the Sargasso Sea of complete rubbish to find out what actually could be the truth. Yeah. And what I try to avoid doing is throw myself into the, the Sargasso sea that is Nazi mythology. Uh, you know, everything from the spear of, of destiny to. Uh, <laughs> right. Greece. Yeah. And just do believe all those magical treasures that, that uh, Himmler got together and how they ever lost the war. However, it is interesting, you know, some aspects of that. Um, Ian Fleming ran a magical operation during World War Two, Ridiculously. And he hired people like Alistair Crowley and Crowley's initiates, yes. the Black Magic guys, to fight a battle against Black Magic Nazis on the astral plane. It's yeah. documented.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. There was stuff like that. I think
1: Dion Fortune was involved in that too. and Yeah. But you know, how much of that is nonsense and how much of that is nonsense? Yeah. And... Uh. As soon as you start to get into that sort of area, the reality of what actually impacted on the economics, politics, and foreign policies of various nations post-World War Two, gets swept away because people want to get really excited about the Nazi zombies in the Arctic.
0: Yeah, I think it's just a, a amount of like where you get your research from. I mean, if you're just going on YouTube and you saw a cool YouTube video and then that's where you get your information from instead of going to like source documents and really scouring through and actually doing research I think there's a bit of a difference
1: (laughs) there are are 83 pages of notes and um and sources at the back of gray wolf the original book 83 pages of it um I mean I I rarely do anything unless I've got two sources for something Mm mm-hmm You're a a journalist. That makes sense. Because I won't go on hearsay. Um, If I'd gone on hearsay, um, I'd be able to tell you that all the Goebbels children escaped from the bunker, and three of them lived in the north of Argentina, three of them at La Falda, and three of them lived in the south with another major Nazi family, the Lohusen. Now, I've been told that by one good source and one incredibly dodgy source. But, of course, Mm -hmm. there's a film of the dead children outside the bunker. And there's a film of Magda and Joseph Goebbels who are dead outside the bunker. But everybody believed that they were the Goebbels' children because a senior Nazi generals said they were. <laughs> but so many other people were dead in Berlin who escaped and, you know, happily drinking coffee in coffee shops in Cordoba in 1973. But, um it's difficult yeah, I've always was a mainstream, as people like to say, journalist, right? Um, it's only recently that fake news has become a, um, a real thing in people's heads, probably the most damaging thing that your um, your I hate to use the word president, but I will – the president has done um, to information. Um, he's caused huge amounts of damage. I mean, it will seep through every decent history and researcher for the rest of – well, I don't know, not the rest of time. It depends on how he gets gone. But that fake news thing is, you know, such a stamp of idiocy on stuff that isn't fake news. I try very desperately. I sound so desperate. I don't I'm not really desperate. I know, I'm a serious bloke when I I do this stuff. Um, But I find it so difficult to separate out the nonsense from the truth. And it, it is a wearing down and incredibly time consuming thing to do. And then you come across a nugget and you think, well, I can prove that because I've got another two people telling you that's true. And that's the, that's the zinger, you know, that's the, that's the thing that makes it work. I understand
2: that you've, you've had some difficulties in this research and you've, you've encountered some resistance and, and I guess you've had some situations too. Is there any of that you could, you could yeah, talk about? I
1: mean, not me personally. Well, I mean, I've, I've had the odd. Odd threat but the people who threaten you are not the ones you ever need to worry about in my experience as an international TV newsman you never worry about the people who are shouting you worry about the people who aren't shouting you're pointing a gun in your back um, but I have had a couple of eyewitnesses in Argentina, they're both in the film who were both threatened with well one was threatened with having his kids killed and his house burnt down and the other was told the Gestapo was still active um, and you must stop talking to us now this is in 2000 and Ten, right? Why are people threatening people with death for telling me things if they're not true? Yeah, I mean, and, you me, can't,
0: and, and you can't think that the Gestapo they're talking about is a bunch of eighty-year-old guys because this is this is no, they're not, they're not. This I mean, is a generational thing. My um,
1: my great friend Tim, um, Captain America, Tim Kennedy, um, who I did three series of Hunting Hitler with um i don't think he and i ever thought we'd get on but tim's a tim's a top guy he's an american samurai or an american templar but you know he is a a wonderful person in lots of ways tim who's a you know special forces trained operative was convinced and pointed out the people who followed us all the way when we were filming hunting hitler um to the extent that they blew my cover at colonia dignidad um so they knew that i'd been talking to people in in santiago de chile and um, they knew I was on my way there. Um, and they'd seen series one and two, I suppose. Or they'd read Grey Wolf. It's published in, in Spanish in Latin America. Um, so there, there there, are those people still around. You know, they're the, the grandchildren now of the senior Nazis who escaped. But just like the West German um, spy organization, the Galen organization, which became the BND, in the 60s and 70s, if you wanted to join the BND, you had to have a father who had served in the Nazi army, either in the SS or the Wehrmacht. You had to be second generation. They didn't accept anybody else.
0: And these guys were protected by our own, by the United States intelligence agency. I mean, it's amazing. The CIA amazing. gave
1: amazing millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, they must have been laughing all over their sauerkraut munching, bloody faces.
0: And it and it's said that that all Galen did was he caused a whole bunch of damage to American intelligence because all he did, he just fed them the information they wanted to hear, exactly. or just, to, just to justify his job, just to keep himself in power. I mean, this, this, this was a guy that was
1: part of the Einsatzgruppe.
0: Yeah. It's, he, it's no, unbelievable.
1: He, I mean, but he did it to keep their eyes off what was happening in Germany. Right. And, right. you know, one of the things Galen does in his memoirs, which is just so cheeky, um, is he says that Martin Borman was a Soviet spy from the early 40s. And it's the it's the final thing that he does for his boss is to try and make the world believe that Martin Borman is a player on the other side. They just, must have laughed their heads off. Just to muddy the waters. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about
0: what's going on now because you do put some kind of there's a continuation of all this and we've we've definitely seen this in some of our other shows that we've done um one i could recommend to you that we did earlier in the year with uh a guy named recluse that was really interesting where we kind of mined some of this material but what what is going on now that it's you would see as a continuation of this and like you know because you mentioned kind of like the alien have like, have the Nazis won? have they won like this kind of (laughs) long-term dark political deep state kind of battle that, you know, have they, did they eventually won the Did they win the long game?
1: Uh, I haven't got much further in my head than 1965. Isn't that terrible? Um, because up until 1965, they're definitely winning the long game. Now, Post that, as the older generation of Nazis die off and this morphing, as you described it earlier, Adam, um, changes that party and that um, racially suspect ideology into something completely and totally different and yet still as hard, still as vicious and still as murderous as, as their dads and granddads were, it's, it's morphed into something and I'm not sure what it's morphed into. I'd, I'd love to have that answer in my head, you know. Um, I mean, I look at I look at U.S. foreign policy and I, I despair. I mean, I just despair. You know, what are you doing in Afghanistan? What were we doing in Afghanistan? You know, Britain was involved in Afghanistan in the 1870s, getting its ass kicked, and we were in imperial power then. Um, yeah. What the hell was Iraq about? What was Libya about? I mean, you know, all these conflicts that I've seen – you know, young, young American boys and young British boys. In fact, my builder, right, is an Afghan veteran at the moment. He was wounded three times in Helmand while we were there. And he, he's a, a fan as well, fan, your friend, whatever. Um, and he was saying that if he knew now what he'd known when he joined up, he wouldn't have joined up. And he definitely wouldn't have taken a bullet for queen and country. Because he, he looks at that old whole involvement in Afghanistan and thinks, what the hell were we doing there? Now, no people who, who like the fact that you're in Afghanistan and that you're elsewhere in the world. They're the people who sell you weapons. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, arms, the arms dealers. Yeah. And, you know, the people who manufacture those those things. And, of course, they're terribly important to the American economy because a great many people work in that sector. They're all registered voters, I suppose. I'm not sure who they voted for. I hope to God it wasn't for the orange one. But there you go. They probably did. Um but, you know, I look at things now where people call black white all the time on the Hill, um, especially Republicans. You know, they just call things that are obviously black, completely white. And there are Democrats who do the same thing, I'm, I'm damn sure. But we see more of that sort of fake news stuff coming over here. Now, I don't think that the, the Trump presidency is the sort of final end game of what these right-wing, organized military-industrial politics deep-state people thought was going to happen. I think this and the pandemic has probably shaken their planning quite a lot, um, and I think they probably all learned Chinese some time ago um, and are making sure they're going to be friendly with the next world power. Does that make any sense to you? That makes
2: sense. Yeah, just kind of a mer- mercenary type of role
1: yeah I mean there's um oh um Tom Lehrer I don't know whether you know the satirist from the nineteen forties and fifties. He's still alive, I think wrote a song called Werner von braun um and he did it's you know, out there it was on television in America and it talks about the widows and pensioners of old London town who owe their livings to Werner von braun um and there's another line that Venner says what could I just makes them go up I don't know where they come down um and then one of the lines is, and I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's just these people out there who had power and never willing to let it go. You know, they can right. take a decision at, at a corporate boardroom that will change the lives of not just them, but everybody who works for them. And whether this is some sort of concerted thing or not, I really don't know, guys. I wish I had the answer.
0: Well, I mean, with things like um, what's going on in Europe right now, I mean, if this, there's a huge um, right wing movement. At least there has been in the last few years. I mean, the tide, yeah. Yeah, the tide it. may be turning.
1: No, I mean, I, you, it, but in places like France, you've always had 20 percent of the population always voted National Front, always yeah. voted mm-hmm. to the Jean Marie Le Pen's operation. they have always been fascists in France. We don't have it in this country. We've never had that sort of core body of they've always just been right wing nutters and not many of them. Um, there has been, again, in Germany and Austria and in Hungary, there's been the, um, the rise of the right again. Um, I'm not sure whether it will survive this pandemic where people are going to have to work together. Um, and, you know, you, there's nobody unless you try and blame it on the Chinese and call it the Kung Flu. Um, there's nobody you can directly blame things on. Like in the 20s and the 30s, you could single out the Jewish community in the banking world and blame them for all your economic ills. Now, you can't do that at the moment, although Poland are trying to do it with their lesbian, gay, and bisexual community. Um, but there has always been that inhumanity. You know, there's always been that nasty, bigoted um, section of society. And it, sometimes it floats to the top, and sometimes men like my father and the great generation that, that America supplied in the Far East and in Europe um, pick up guns and put on their helmets and go and kill them. Um, and let's hope that that sort of anti-fascist feeling, I'm not saying anti-far, the anti-fascist feeling, is something that still is at the heart of every decent, moral American and Brit um, but, yeah, I mean, there, there's always been the rise of the right. You know, it, almost every country in Europe had a fascist dictatorship at some stage, apart from the United Kingdom, um, except maybe ours was a little better hidden.
0: <laughs> maybe if you have, like, Oliver Oliver Cromwell or somebody like that, but that's a long and time I'm, ago.
1: I'm, I'm talking the 30s, 40s, and 50s in Europe. Yeah. So right. are in Portugal. You have Franco in yeah. Spain. You have the colonels in Greece. Um, yep. De, Gaulle, De Gaulle isn't exactly a Democrat um, in France. Um, And, you know, Germany just had Hitler. Austria just had Hitler. So almost every country in Europe had a a fascist at their helm at some stage, only 70, 80, 90 years ago, in some cases only 50 years ago. So it does rise to the top. It does rise to the top. I mean, you know, your wonderful arsenal of democracy is I think how Churchill described um, the United States when he wanted you to come and join us uh, in World War II. and I hope to God that there still is that democratic, and I'm not talking political party here, right? I'm talking that decency, that sort of Athenian decency that was always present in America from the founding fathers up. You know, people like Thomas Paine, who was British, but pretty much American, who wrote The Rights of Man. Those things are really important. People like Hamilton and, you know, those people who wrote your constitution, Um which has been you know, hijacked on so many levels by so many particular interest groups. But I, I don't link this, at the moment anyway, back to what happened immediately after World War II, which is where a an Nazi organization under Martin Borman worked extremely closely with the CIA um, under Alan Dulles and various other aspects of the American and German military industrial complex. In Germany, the industrial complex in America, the military industrial complex, and ran the Cold War, ran geopolitics for twenty five years. And I'm just shocked by it all.
0: Well it's 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 an awful mess over here right now. But <laughs> yeah. I'm 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 really hoping that we can get somewhat back on track at some so point.
1: So do I so do I. I mean that just to see this many innocent people die, you know it's, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? You think that you know there were governments when I was growing up that were would prepare us in the West for the threat of nuclear war, as if we mm-hmm. could survive a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. We're having difficulty surviving a virus. Yeah.
0: <sighs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, it, it, it makes me wonder, though, too, just like – and Surfia and I have talked about this a lot. Just like, you know, I mean, we mentioned Russia before. I mean they're really whipping up a lot of the right wing agitation. They're really Yeah, they're really whipping it up. It keeps
1: people's eyes off what's happening in Russia it's, itself. I mean accusing of the um a democrat or you know, a man who holds onto democratic principles in any way shape or form. Um uh, it's Yeah, it really is complex. I mean, considering I used to be an international journalist and I watched the news all the time, I don't watch it at all nowadays. Wow, I mean, that's a that's a statement. I read newspapers again, um, and I go and I read Reuters copy and Associated Press copy, but I I can't watch broadcast news. It's um, it's just not the news. It's just not news. Most of it, yeah. I mean, I I've, I've, I've followed Dan Rather, um, the veteran um, TV presenter and reporter, and a great deal of respect for Dan and his generation. Um, they're the generation before me, uh, the generation that did Vietnam, basically. And I see Dan Rather's writings, and I think, yeah, how can anybody disagree with what Dan Rather writes? He's a decent American, a good man, and yet he gets so much flack. <laughs>
2: Well, decency is out the window now here, so. yeah,
1: no, we, we have lost the age of decency. We have it here as well. You know, we have a prime minister who has um, multiple children, but multiple affairs and multiple marriages, lied to get two of his jobs, was fired from two of his jobs because he lied, lied about the Brexit deal where we'd get $350 million a week back from the European powers. Brexit has now cost the United Kingdom more than we've paid into the European Union since we joined and it's all lies, and he just gets away with it. I mean, what was it? Was it Clinton or Te- uh, or um, Reagan? They used to call the Teflon presidency. Nothing would stick. Um, I
0: think that was Clinton.
1: Yeah, maybe it was Clinton, and yeah. yeah, nothing stuck to him. Things stuck to his friends, but uh, nothing stuck to him. Um, and we have now Teflon presidents and prime ministers. Mm-hmm. It does what they did. You know, they still are accepted by what used to be decent right thinking members of society as good people. Well I'm afraid neither of the men either in number ten or the White House, or anything that my mum would describe as a good person, she wouldn't have them in the house. She just wouldn't have had them in the house. And my father wouldn't (laughs) have been friends with them. You know, my dad would have looked at them and gone, What a piece of dirt. You know, look what he's done to those children. What look what he's done to his ex wife. What a piece of you know, my father wouldn't have respected
0: these people i just wonder if we have just become people just got so jaded because of all the bad stuff that governments have done in the past that now there's such a distrust of any kind of government that these people get elected
1: Uh, because all
0: they've got all they've (laughs) got to do is just say this say the right say something that is quote unquote the right thing and they get elected and then all this chaos just ensues
1: yeah, taking it back to the Nazis, I mean, they do, um, on both sides of the pond, take large pages out of Mr. Goebbels' handbook, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's the classic thing that I come across all the time, um, researching the Nazis and what they did after World War II, is if you tell a lie long enough and loud enough, it becomes the truth.
2: Yeah, and in addition to all that technology, raw technology and scientists we got, um, I think one of the... Uh, most awful inheritances we got from the Third Reich was that uh, that propaganda, psychological warfare, and even even darker things.
1: Yes, completely. But I mean, they also gave you rock and roll. You know, they were the people who first invented multi-track recording. Without Hitler, there'd be no Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? <laughs> so you know, without the Nazis, there'd be no bloody bloody Holly. <laughs> there'd be no, um, no Les Paul um, because yeah. the technology was all German, right, right. So sorry about that. You know, if there if hadn't been Hitler, we wouldn't have had Elvis. Of course, we'd have had Elvis. We just wouldn't have had a multi-track Elvis until 1965. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> that, that's
0: the that's that's the one thing about like the tragedy though of Nazism is that you know Germany, even though all the problems that it had, had made such great inroads and was such in had, had produced such great philosophers and artists and you oh. know if you've if you've watched German expressionism from the twenties and
1: thirties, you know, yeah. you see the themes that were there. How has so he perfect, just you know? Yeah. I he mean just, my dad never hated the Germans. I mean it was um my mum whose brother in law thought the whose brother my uncle fought the Japanese out in the east, um in the Pacific conflict. Um my mum hated the Japanese would not have a thing that was made in Japan in the house um, post-war. But my dad never hated the Germans. I mean, he did quite a lot of business in the European coal and steel organizations, um, so Germany and France, and that's in you know the early 50s and then into the 60s. And uh, my father never hated the Germans, but he never understood how that nation, because he learned their language in school, how that nation went insane. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Well, they are – I mean, the stereotype would be that, that they're prone to extremes and in in you know the extreme embrace of modernism and how much they excelled with that, they also uh, had to, the polar opposite in anti-modernism that really showed itself in the Third Reich.
1: And it, it also goes back a great deal to the regimentation of German society that was put in place by Bismarck. So, mm-hmm. you know, you had postmen had different ranks, um, somebody who was the curator of a building was the... Building captain, um, and they were used to taking orders and doing what they were told and believing their governments. So when Hitler and his cronies hijacked the parliament in 33, um, 33, yeah, 33, 36, can't remember, um, they were willing to listen to them because they were the government. Yeah. You know, they hadn't taken over in a coup. Um, Hindenburg declared Hitler chancellor, and so he was there and he had a right to be there. And so when he started to speak, People thought, well, he's the Chancellor of Germany. Yeah, they, yeah. they gain it. they gain power through legitimate means. Yeah, and then Tila you know, just mows the whole thing. Yeah, it's been tried again on a few places. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I have a wry, cynical smile on my face at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's
0: it's true because <laughs> you know you, you see the same if you if you look at articles from Germany of the time the early 30s, Hitler has just taken power. And there was a lot of people that said, well, all he says is just rhetoric. He doesn't really mean that we're going to go after the Jews. He doesn't <laughs> He doesn't really mean any of the things that he says. He's just a buffoon. And it's very similar to some of the things that you hear now about certain world leaders.
1: Yes, And very- it's,
0: it's, fr- it's frightening.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, life used to seem to be simple for me anyway. You know, there, there was a black and white, There were good and bad, and what I've realized in later life, and I suppose maybe this is just me becoming mature or me getting off the road and not focusing on an individual story per day, um, is that there are so many shades of gray that it's difficult to know what exactly is effectively good and bad anymore. Yeah. I mean, I know because of the way I was brought up, I believe certain things are bad and certain things are good. You know, I was brought up by a relatively strict Catholic mother. Um, and, yeah, I know the Catholic Church is one of the worst organizations in the world for, you know, its abuse of children and its abuse of politics and its help of Nazis. And it's not a good it's not a good organization. Um, and yet it has millions of people around the world who are seriously good right, church right. who believe in things, you know, decent right. human beings. But, I mean, the lines between good and bad are now have become so dissolute, so undefined. That you know, I start looking at these people and what they were doing in the 40s and 50s, getting back to my topic, um, and I think, why did they do that? And they did it because they were completely arrogant in their beliefs that they were right. We didn't have that in the 60s and the 70s in, in um, English-speaking democracies. People didn't know, didn't believe that they were right. But in the Nazis' case, if they... Had taken an oath to die for the Führer or die for the party. Um, That's what they believed, and they stayed with it. You're never an ex-Nazi. You're never a former Nazi. So belief was such an important, strong thing. Um, And maybe aspects of that are coming back, where it doesn't matter whether it's right or wrong, but if you believe it, it becomes the new right. And I don't politically. Sorry, I'm sounding like a philosopher. Right. I'm not, guys. I'm a, <laughs> you know, I'm a hacker. No, I mean, it must, it must uh,
2: impact you when you, when you um, discover things like what you've been studying. Um, it, it must affect you philosophically. And and you have Dulles. to consider all the implications.
1: You've got an airport in the States of um called Dulles International. Um, yes. Why you don't just um, name it – who is that guy in the American War of Independence who was um, the ultimate traitor? Benedict uh, Arnold? Yeah, yeah. we yeah. name it Benedict Arnold International. Because Alan Dulles is one of the worst Americans in history. He's yeah. an out-and-out fascist who dealt right. and treated with the enemies of the United States for years after the war. And yeah. what were his yeah. reasons? What were his reasons? Nothing more than power, as far as I can see at the moment.
2: Yeah, yeah. well, I would say popularly, power. though... I would say for a lot of the people in the United States who do understand somewhat what happened, um, I think they do see it as that type of bargain with the devil. That uh, well, we had to, you know, the Soviets were going to get these guys if we didn't, and we needed these people in order to win the Cold War. And they, I think, some of them might feel vindicated by us, um, you know, quote unquote, winning the Cold War. Uh, I, so I, get,
1: I get the real. Maybe, Human, circuit, so yeah. like I do. I do. I don't. I don't find it morally very nice.
2: No, uh, no, it's not.
1: And you know, I'm not some sort of. Um, oh God, I've had my bad days as well. You know, I'm not some goody-goody. I'm just not.
2: Right, um, right. You're not prepared um, to embrace that. I, I understand you. Sh- you shouldn't be if you have any kind of democratic ideals.
1: No, well, I, I can't. You know, I just cannot see that the means always justifies the end Right. Yeah. Yeah, because it it, it
0: shouldn't, um, it, and people don't under and, and they don't understand what you know. There there is that argument, but then those same people never ask themselves, well, what did it cost? What was yeah. what was the what was the cost of all that? You yeah. know, what did it what do to us? Yeah, you know? in the end, was it worth it? Was it morally worth it?
1: For you me, know, the, that's for me. The cost is counted on the boys dead at Utah and Omaha. Right, and the boys dead at Rehmargen, and the boys dead in the push to Berlin, and the boys who died in the Pacific. Um, That's what the real cost was. They were betrayed, those young men and women who laid down their lives for what they were told was a democratic ideal, that they were Mm -hmm. building a better world, and they were killed indiscriminately for some other reasons. And that's the cost. The moral cost is... Yeah, your your constant bleeding in Afghanistan, the number of men dead in Iraq,
0: mm-hmm.
1: what's the moral cost? You know, for every Wraithian bloody predator um, drone that is bought by the U.S. military for $20 million, um, it's paid for by the blood of young Americans on the ground in, in Iraq mm-hmm. or young Brits. Yep. And if that's acceptable, okay, you've got to say that's acceptable. But going back to a deal done with um, a group of people who had looted and raped their way through Europe and were responsible for the industrial murder of over 11 million people is not something I can find acceptable at any level, any level. And Favourite. If, Favourite. If, I ever, if I ever do, shoot me, because you know, then it, none of it would be worthwhile. I mean, you know, I've, got, I've got kids now in, in their um, late 20s, early 30s. And they see these people who have come to power in America and the United Kingdom. And they think, but they got to power by lying and cheating and not telling the truth. And yet I've been brought up by my mum and dad to be decent, to try and be kind, to try and be human. And my two kids are doing fine. They're doing rather rather well. Um, But when they look at these people in power, they must think, well, bugger it. You know, what's the point of being decent? Why should I be faithful to my wife? Um, Why should I, you know, not sleep with whores? Why? Because nobody gives a damn. Why should I not, you know, come up with great business deals that actually are completely fake and didn't work? Because people will respect me for it. And that's, there is a rot, uh, not just in America for me, but there is a rot um, within the English-speaking world. Um, And it's a rock that goes back a long way, and maybe maybe it's because it was this deal with the devil um, after World War II. I know, guys, you've got me being all philosophical. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, let me
0: okay. uh, let me you. ask let me ask you this before we before we end, Jared. Um, yeah, you mentioned that you were there as the Soviet Union was falling. Are yeah, was, you
2: it was, it was, it was,
0: do you see any colli- <laughs> Do you see any parallels between now and between now and then?
1: no um it, it it really is it really is difficult I mean you know i'm I'm a foreign observer to what's happening in America, and then I hear the Governor of California, I don't know any anything about the Governor of California, but when he starts referring to California as a nation state and it's the eighth or nine largest economy in the world yeah i look, I look at the United States and I think, how long can you stay united?
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know there must be a lot of people in in states looking at Washington and thinking. Where the hell were you when we needed you? Why mm-hmm. should we fund you? Um, yeah. So they're that, you know, in, the, in the case of the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, whether we are witnessing, and I, I hope to God not, but I don't know, we, we're seeing it in Britain where we're splitting along nationalistic lines in England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. You know, This is no longer a United Kingdom. We have four distinct national bodies, and I'm Welsh, I'm one of them. Um, but I used to be British and proud of it. I'm not proud of being British now because it's run by a bunch of nutty um, private school educated illegitimate sons of bitches in, in in Number Ten. They're not my they're not my government anymore. Mm. Um, they have nothing in common with me, or and what they stand for has nothing in common with me. So you know, we have our country breaking down and, and the national lines. And I see aspects of what's happening in America breaking down under state lines. And you think, why isn't there anybody at the center of this going, um, good old USA, guys. You know, that's what we were good at. So um, I don't know. But, I mean, I I did watch the collapse of the Soviet Union. I was stuck in a minefield in Latvia for eight hours, uh, which is a memory I don't like to share very often. Um, As the Russian Oman troops pulled out. Um, we were stuck on a base. We were filming with an American cameraman, a really good buddy of mine, Bart. Not rather, um, but yeah. I mean, you can see parallels in all history. I mean, I think Adam so One thing that is so true, you know, um, is that if we don't learn from history, it repeats itself. But we never learn from history ever, you know. I I agree with that. <laughs> I've been saying this, heretofore, since. since, since you know, since since Greece, since Rome, I mean, you know, there were warnings there for everything that's happened to us, uh, because it had happened to them. And we've ignored them all. And we continue to ignore them all. And people go, but God's sake, how did that happen? You go, you didn't read your history books, mate. Yeah. And yeah, I'm now reading my history books and thinking this is all lies. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so my yeah. research
1: has shaken my foundations, unbelievably. Um and you know, as a journalist, I'm used to my foundations being shaken. I'm used to being shocked by things I discover or report. Um, but not like this. Really not like this. Yeah. But to distill this massive information down into something that is edible for the majority of people, that doesn't sound like some nutty conspiracy, make it up in your bedroom rubbish, is really difficult. And it gets more difficult the further away we get from 1945, because it just does. You know, if you if you didn't experience that history, um, or if you didn't have parents or family to experience that history, it becomes less and less important to you. And as such, you won't learn from lessons.
0: Very much agreed. Very I much think, agreed. I, I think I
1: might start keeping rabbits and just worry about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well.
0: Gerard, uh, tell everybody where they can uh, get the film, also where they could sure, I mean, see yeah. some of the some of the research that you're working on and and all that good stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean the best place to follow me is on Facebook. You can find me, Gerard Williams. Um, I tend to um, like to engage with people who are interested as long as they don't come to me and say I'm Adolf Hitler's daughter. I've had too many of those. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> find me on facebook there's a there's a page on facebook the spiders web where you'll find a lot of interesting information um and it's where my sources from around the world um regularly publish interesting material as do i i hope it's interesting anyway um you can see gray wolf the escape of Adolf Hitler on amazon prime um and there are pirated copies out there on youtube as well and as i don't make any money from that film i don't mind if you watch it on a pirate um the original gray wolf book is still there um, published by Sterling, um, Barnes & Noble's publishers, and that's also available on Amazon um, and on Barnes & Noble's website too. So um, you can you can find me and Google me. You'll find lots of horrible things out there being said about me, um, and I can only promise you that 98% of them are lies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, when does the next – I,
1: I used to be a redhead. That's the only 2%. You Oh, know? uh, okay,
0: okay. When, when would the next book be coming out What's your
1: your um, I should have sorted out that contract just as this hit and in fact right. I think it was, I think it was the day that I was meant to come on your show Adam and I went I can't do this yeah. um, so that's three or four months ago when I when I, I ran away from you uh, because I had too much on my mind and I didn't realize how quite serious this was going to be I thought it was serious I tried to persuade my kids and my my ex-wife to leave London um, which they Two of them did in the end. I've got one son in London, but he's fine. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping that once things get back to some sort of new normal and publishing re-kicks in and we can actually go filming to places. And at the moment, I can't even come to your country. You know, yeah, I'm not yes. allowed by the American to visit the United States. And I think Europe tonight is saying that Americans cannot come to Europe at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, so I just, that. I
0: just saw that today. Yeah.
1: Because, yeah, you know, the, the handling of the virus problems in America um, is too too bad, and of course the Trump administration thought that the handling of the virus problems in Europe was bad, so we aren't allowed to come to America. I can't I can't see me filming television as I used to film television for until a vaccine's out there. Um, we'll find clever ways of doing it, and uh, you know we'll find clever ways of making new TV series and programs, but at the moment. They won't be like they used to be. Um, you know, I think in the last series of hunting hit, I was in Germany, Sweden, Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, Uruguay. Um, yeah. I can't see that happening for a while. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Um, which trust me, um, is hugely frustrating for somebody who spent most of their life living out of a suitcase. Yeah,
0: I'm sure. But,
1: um, sure. Yeah. Well, Jared, thank you so much.
0: This has been, uh, this has been
1: great. Pleasure. A real pleasure. I, I hope I haven't been running my mouth off too much. Oh
0: no, you—you were you no, absolutely it's been fine. great discussion. We, we enjoyed it. Sorry it was—it was, to it be, was really, good.
1: really good. The philosophy. Um, <laughs> I don't do that in my books. Only in my personal time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared, stay on the line for us. We're going to close out this section, and guys, we'll be back to close out this show on Conspiracy Normal. welcome back everybody that was a very interesting and informative interview uh we got a little philosophical there at the end so yeah that did yeah. that did not disappoint i think we covered good good basic some good uh, pretty interesting interesting topics on that one man which how do you feel about that we, we've had quite a lot of shows about this type of stuff recently this was yeah. um yeah, you know, and yeah. and the
2: basis of what we were talking about today was on the the Hitler survival stuff. But um, you know, whatever you think about that, it seems like that was his path to
0: uh, understanding all this other material. Right, right, right. The Hitler survival stuff is interesting, but I think would it be necessary for that to have happened for the rest of this yeah. to have happened? I think it. I think that it did. It all did happen anyway. That all the connections. And the survival of the Nazi apparatus after World War II and becoming a multinational corporation, that is stuff that really happened. And right. honestly, the whole idea that Hitler survived as is portrayed in that book, and that film, is not that far-fetched. It really isn't. And it's kind of much more a realistic scenario than anything else that I've heard. You know, like he mentioned the the Nazi bases on on Mar not Mars, <laughs> the Nazi bases in Antarctica. Maybe there is a Nazi base on Mars. You never know. But stuff, <laughs> stuff gets weird. Might it's be, the moon, might, man. The moon. Yeah, they, Yeah, the moon. They might be fighting the blue avians on Mars with Corey Good. But uh, so uh, we've had a pretty good, decent response to Strange Realities Online Conference this year. Yeah. And we want to talk just a little bit about some of the people that we have coming to the conference and people that will be presenting um, on Friday, September twenty fifth, Saturday the September twenty sixth, and Sunday, September twenty seventh. And so we have returning from last year we've got Tim Banal of Banal of America Fame, Timothy Renner. Strange familiars. You guys know him and Guy Malone will also be returning and someone and a couple people that were there but did not present will actually be presenting this year. And that's Brent rains who we're going to be talking to on conspiracy normal soon. And Dr. Future will be there. I convinced him to present. And we're also going to have Aaron Gullius from from the saucer life podcast uh-huh. And, uh huh. And Jenny Ashford is going to join us, Our good friend Jenny uh, from 13 o'clock. Uh, Ren Collier, who knew you guys have heard many, many times, is going to be there. And we're going to talk also, uh, looks like Soraya from Where Did the Road Go may be making an appearance. So stay tuned on all that. But last but not least, Alan Greenfield will be there as well. So that's going to be a wild ride. Who else we got? Who else we got? Well, we got Kiki Gombrowski is going to be there. Uh, Stephanie Quick, David Betcalf, who we talked to a couple of episodes ago, and a few other people we'll talk about later. But that's for right now. We've got about, I think, about 20 presenters going to be presenting over a three-day period. And right now, guys, we want to make sure that you take advantage of this because we are actually running a special that from the time this show posts is going to end on July 15th. So you've only got three days from now to get it at $15. But after that, the price is going to be $20. So it's still fairly fairly cheap. So right. that's and almost with almost twenty speakers. I mean, that's a that's a really good deal. Yep, and uh, it's available on Eventbrite, and actually, I will have that linked up to the show notes, so that if you guys want to purchase a ticket, all you got to do is go in there and and buy one from uh, from your phone. So uh, we're making it pretty easy for you guys this year. No travel, no fuss. Uh, right. You don't have to worry about a hotel, especially in the. Uh, weird climate that we are in right now so guys this is gonna be a night and two days of some real interesting paranormal and probably little conspiracy tinged goodness for you guys so we really want to see you there
2: and uh, we've uh, we've kind of done this soft release so far but we're gonna be doing the uh, big announcement of both uh, all of the speakers and What topics they're going to talk about really soon. Uh, We'll start having them on as guests, maybe doing some panels leading up to that. And then, of course, in August, as a uh, lead-up, we are going to be streaming for free the entire Uh, conference from last year so you guys will get to see that everyone who didn't get to come to nashville um we've been experimenting with the ways that this is going to be set up already so we're going to have announcements on how it's uh, actually going to work it's going to be really cool we're trying to trying to make this a, a real cool fun experience and uh try to try to still have some sense of community
0: absolutely absolutely and guys also don't forget about patreon Um, You can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal We've got extra stuff up there now and it's only a dollar to join You've got access to about I think 70 posts all the way back from 2016 And we are also putting up the speakers, the presentations Week to week of the Strange Realities Conference from last year So you guys will be able to see those too But uh, So, Patreons are going to get a first look at those before we do our little stream of that in August. So, don't forget, YouTube, Normal Podcast, give a subscription on there. Please leave a review. And if you don't want to become a Patreon, you can go to our website and you can leave a donation. And we would like to thank Thomas who just recently gave us a really really awesome donation so very Thomas generous. yeah very very generous so Thomas if you're listening we really would like to thank you for that so and we'd like
2: to invite you to
0: the uh, strange realities conference on us absolutely absolutely all right guys that's it we will be back next time with some more interesting topics that will make you think on conspira no